0: been talking for the past, what has it been, four weeks or five weeks? I'm not, I'm a communications major, not a math major. Uh, So I think it was five weeks, four weeks about blueprints and really what we're calling the summit design. And I really, this idea of blueprint really resonated with me um, because when you think about it, blueprints do a lot of things. So we've got some builders in our church, um, guys who are contractors. You know the value of blueprints, but engineers get it too, right, in terms of schematics for electronic things. But blueprints show the vision and plans of the architect. And we know that the architect in the church is Jesus Christ, that is God. But blueprints have this other value too, and that is that they give the workers, the people who are working on things, a clear direction for what they're called to build, repair, and maintain. So if you go up to Kevin and say, hey, I want to see the blueprints for our church. You go back in this room that he has, and there's like, I don't know, it's like this high, right, Kevin, of all these blueprints. You could go back there and see it now. Don't. Stay and listen to the message. But if you wanted to, you could see all these blueprints for our church, and they tell engineers and builders, contractors, about how our church at Summit is laid out in terms of the actual building. So this morning, our passage is from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And really, as we think about what we've been looking at the past four or five weeks, we want to start to put the blueprints together into understanding this bigger picture of God's purposes and his vision for his church. So we say this is my church, right? I I go to this church, or we say our church together. But ultimately, the church is God's. God owns the church. It's his design. He's the architect. And he's laid out things in a specific way, and he's communicated that through his word. So we're going to look through Ephesians 4 at God's blueprints for his church. We're part of it because he's chosen that, but it's his church. So... 9-12, 9-12, was that when we kicked off? Jasper talked about humility. And humility is like this super glue or cement or concrete that, that holds the church together. Humility. And then Todd focused for two weeks on our foundation, the foundation of the church. That is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Those two concepts are inseparable, inexorably linked. You can't separate them. Which is why we focus on both as our foundation. So a person, Jesus Christ, is our foundation. And his word also, the written word of God, is our foundation. And we never want to separate those things. We don't want to uh, only focus on person in terms of, well, this is just about a relationship. At the expense of knowing the Word of God. But we also don't want to get so stuck up in here about knowing things that we forget that we are following and serving a person who is God, Jesus Christ. Last week I thought Jasper did an awesome job from John chapter 15 talking about discipleship. And really, the core of discipleship is being a disciple, which is abiding in Christ. If you don't know that word, abiding, means living in or remaining in, sticking with and staying with Christ. Jasper also introduced the mission of our church. Um, it was interesting to st- when, he, when, he, when he said, hey, who knows the mission of our church? Different people said different things. I would love it just thinking about trying to care for our body. If there was a point of time in which anyone who is regularly part of Summit Church knows that we are called to glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ, that that flows off. That's not a slogan It's to help us remember what we're all about at Summit Church. And then today we're going to talk about a second part of the mission that goes with abiding in Christ. And you could say it's about abiding in Christ together, but ultimately that comes down to speaking the truth and love together. Now I mentioned that Ephesians is like this awesome blueprint for the church. So we're going to take like, I don't know, three minutes to look at a high level of the book of Ephesians, and then we'll get into Ephesians 4, specifically verses 1 through 16. But God's blueprint, this is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. God's blueprint, his plans, they show us that he'll be glorified by the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So if you look in Ephesians 1, verse 10, it talks about that. God has this plan for all time that he's going to fulfill all things in Christ. Pretty amazing. And we know this of Jesus. Because of his great love for us, saved us from sin and death by grace through faith. And in that, he brought us together as one body. is an example that's used, body, as as one family or household is the way it's said in in Scripture, and dwelling place, temple, um, home, the church. And we're going to do a little doctrine here. I know doctrine sounds yucky to some of you, but doctrine is super important. If you look all throughout the New Testament, right, healthy, sound teaching is so important to the health of the church. So a little doctrine, big picture about the church. When you look at how the Bible describes and prescribes things for the church. We see a church that is universal and invisible, right? If you were in Faithful Men and Faithful Women, you know this. Grudem wrote about this in Systematic Theology. The church is universal. That is, it's not in any one specific place. It's everywhere, and it's invisible. That is, only God knows those who really compose his church. Only God knows that. So, universal and invisible. But the church is also the way that the Bible talks about the church, local and visible. This is super important for us to know that this is the way that the Bible, the blueprint, talks about the church. And why? Because then you look at what God wants for His church, and knowing these two ideas together you know that God's blueprint for the church involves individual people everywhere, everywhere, not constrained to any geographic location. So people everywhere who are known by God. Pretty amazing to be called into God's family. But those people are then clearly organized into groups, local groups, that are known by some things. Their obvious love and commitment to both God and each other. So we can't separate those things out. We can't just say, oh, I'm over here. I'm known by God and loved by God, and that's all that matters. That's part of all that matters. But God calls us and brings us into his family and calls us to be organized in local groups. And we're known by our love for God and our commitment to God and our love for each other and our commitment to each other. And then we get into Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And this is kind of like, if you look at Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 about what God has done, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is about what we're called to do out of that. There's a lot of therefores in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. But the church, so remember, universal, invisible, known only by God everywhere, and then local and visible. The church follows God's blueprint together. Together, by living in a way that shows the value of Jesus Christ. And this is done by personally knowing him, right? Jesus is a person. We know him. We relate to him and interact with him. And imitating him. Imitating God. And making his truth and love the focus of all our interactions in our lives and our relationships. So now we're at Ephesians 4. And the first thing we see in Ephesians 4 verse 1... Is this: that we're called to follow this blueprint by beginning with humility, And that humility produces a unity. Verses one and two there. "I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all patience, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. So this is the apostle Paul writing this, a special figure in the history of the church and the founding of the church. And he's personally calling. When we see the word urge there, it's this idea of I'm coming alongside you and calling you to this. I'm not asking, I'm I'm telling, but I'm with you in it. He personally calls the church to live in a way that shows the value of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And then he, he describes how to do this. Look at what it says, with, right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So with all humility... We're not going to deep dive on this because Jasper did a few weeks ago. Humility is what happens when you rightly compare yourself to God. It's a a lowliness, an understanding of lowliness and an understanding of need that produces dependence. So the, the truest sign of humility, though, isn't when you just think lowly of yourself, though that might be right and that is right. It's when you're really recognizing that you're starting to not think of yourself so much at all and more about what God desires. So the greater that your confidence is in God's way, we could say the greater your faith is, the less time you spend focusing on yourself. That's humility, all humility, complete humility, total humility, everything humility, and then all gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit as Jasper brought up, and then Todd kind of made fun of him about later um, at the end of the service, right? We know the fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. So it's a, a fruit, something that the Holy Spirit produces in believers that allows strength to exist with kindness and without harshness. Gentleness is what allows people who've been made strong in the Lord to effectively and patiently deal with broken and vulnerable people So gentleness is anti-abuse. Gentleness is anti-manipulation. And it's anti-aggression. That's what gentleness is. And it's only produced by the Holy Spirit. Patience, another fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Literally, this word is is long-suffering. And it's a change that the Holy Spirit makes in, in believers that allows you to live your life according to God's timetable, not your own. And it only happens by the Holy Spirit living in you, God working through you. And humility and gentleness and patience produce something, and that's the ability to bear with one another in love. The word, I don't know, it's been the past probably 20 or 30 years, the word tolerance has become warped into something that it's not. Because bearing with one another in love is really about tolerating and living according to God's grace with one another. Tolerance or bearing with one another in love is never giving up when someone else screws up. Living by the grace of God. And humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another is all done in love. That's that, that foundational, that first fruit of the Spirit. The first thing that we understand in Christ when our heart's changed by the Holy Spirit is love. Not passion love, not just friendship love, but this love that can never go away and God has forever. And this all produ- also produces something in us, e- eagerness. We're eager, look at that in verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Eager is just hurrying up, to put serious effort towards something. And the thing that you're supposed to put serious effort toward is maintaining something. Notice that it does not say create unity. You don't have to create unity in the church because we already have that in Christ by his spirit. So we're called to keep or maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're tied together by a a supernatural rope that God has given us. And it's a change... He's made in us by the Holy Spirit that that allows you to be calm and content and restful no matter the circumstances. That's the bond of peace. And the examples in this that we're called to think about if you look at verses 4 and 5 are all about oneness. Look Look, one body, one spirit. You're called the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father over all. So God's blueprint for the church shows this supernatural unity that starts with the transformation of individual people's hearts away from themselves. God does something to us so we don't have to focus on ourselves and we can think about and care for other people as we interact with them by his power. And all our love is directed towards others and ultimately to God. So there's this idea of oneness and wholeness and together. But... Christ gives powerful grace and personal gifts. So if you look in verse 7, there's the word but there. You could translate that as on the other hand or in another way. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So while the church is all about togetherness and wholeness, there's an aspect of individual parts of the church. And you know who that is? That's you. That's me working together together. So God's plan or blueprint for the church involves him putting different types of people together. Working together, completely dependent on him and dependent on each other. So God is not making cars. I don't know if you've ever seen an assembly line with all the robotics putting cars together and every part is the same. And they're used across different cars or electronics. I don't know if you're an Android person or an iOS person, but... God is not making iPhones or Galaxy phones where he just assembles these components and they're all the same. God is putting together different things with different gifts in his body to accomplish his purposes. A friend of mine who's part of this church says it this way, oneness is not sameness in the church. So the worst case scenario for Summit Church or any other church would be if every person was striving really to, to conform to the church to their own image and desires rather than God's while, while trying to like be someone who they're not. God brings us together as one and then to recognize that other people have strengths and gifts and talents and abilities and they're called to use those in the same way that we each are. And the only way out of that trap of self and focus on self is humility and then Grace grace was given to us there's a really cool example that that helps us remember what grace is g r a c e grace god's riches who knows it god's riches at christ's expense i'm not going to make you all say it and repeat it like that that feels like 90s church right everyone say it together no grace god's riches at christ's expense grace so in christ jesus and by the work of Christ Jesus and the person of Christ, you have God's riches. Jesus won the right to give you grace by who he is and what he's done. And when you look at the, the verse there, verse uh, 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting a psalm here, Psalm 68 you know what Psalm 68 is about? It's about that God always wins. God always wins. He's the victor. So thinking about what Christ has done, the thing that we need to remember, and the reason Paul is referencing this psalm is so that we know that Christ won. He ascended on a high, leading a host of captives. You know what psalms are? They're poems and they're songs. And it's hard for us now, because we look at them like, well, it's the Bible. So yeah, there's 100% truth in the Psalms. But they were written with the intention of being sung or being poetry. So I wrote a poem about the victory of Christ. I want to read it. It's based on Psalm 68. He alone was worthy and able to climb to the summit, having shown his enemies to be powerless against his will, The one who stood above the heavens before there was time, lowered himself to walk among dead bones on the battlefield of death. But he rose and captured every enemy and took back all the things they thought they had won. He's the victor. So in him, we are victorious. He won the right to give all the riches of the king as irrevocable gifts to his people. Christ's gifts are given out of his victory. Jesus won. Christ is the victor. And your participation in his body is a celebration of the victory of Christ. So every time that you, you are here and every time you text someone in the body of Christ who is in Christ Jesus or send them a message or do that crazy thing that some people still do and call someone and encourage them in Christ Jesus or every time you serve at Gateway Gathering or all the things that you do in Christ Jesus, when you do that, you're not only doing that to, to honor Christ, you're doing it to celebrate that he's the victor, he's the winner. And we have to remember how he won. That's kind of the point of like this parenthetical that we see in Verse 9. And 10. And saying he ascended, what does it mean, but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So when we think about God's powerful grace in our life and the personal gifts that he's given us, we have to remember that he won that for us, not how we might think someone should win. But he, he was in heaven above all, exalted over all, and he condescended and descended to the earth. And then he, even worse than that, he chose to die, though he didn't have to. It was of his own choice. And then he ascended after that. So we have to remember that about Christ. Christ. Christ's gifts are given out of his victory, but the way he won that victory is is a way that none of us would have mapped it out or planned it out. Because God in his perfect will had something better and more awesome that we would look at that and say, praise be to God. Praise be to God for his glorious grace. You know what? Sometimes we limit our thinking about God's riches. If if grace is God's riches at Christ's expense, we think about grace very much in a aspect of... um, for Forgiveness. So salvation. We think of grace in that way. And forgiveness. But there's something that we forget. Or maybe we put like an unnecessary box around the grace of God. Because grace isn't just pardon. It's power. And that's what this passage is talking about. We forget the riches of God's present power. It's not just past pardon. That's true. You were forgiven in Christ Jesus. Amazing. But then he's given you grace, which is power to live according to the way that he wants you to live. On top of that grace, then, that Christ has given you, he gives you personal gifts. Christ gives each individual follower a unique personal gift that perfectly matches the grace and faith that he's given that person. This is another interesting one. So we we know, like if you've done the church thing and you're in the word and you know it, you're like, oh, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And that's what the word is talking about here. Spiritual gifts. But often we think of spiritual gifts in an incomplete way. So we think like, all right, God made this list of gifts over here. Separately, and he's like, all right, we got knowledge, uh, we got mercy, we got helps, we got uh, all these different gifts. We say, God made these gifts over here, independent of anything else. And then, when people are in Christ, that is when they recognize that they need Jesus, and they confess with their mouth, and they believe in their heart, then God kind of like dishes out the gifts like this. That the gifts are independent of the people, right? But that's not how it works. Yes, there are different types of gifts when we think about gifts, we, could, we should think about diversity in the church and different types of people and different types of gifts. But we need to remember that this is a personal gift from God to a person, and it's more about the use of the gift than the gift itself. And you know what? It shows up sometimes in the church when someone asks or says, I don't know where I can use my gifts, or I don't... There's nowhere here at Summit for me to use my gifts. And I want to challenge that thinking this morning because God gave you a gift and then God has shaped your life and put you through circumstances that you would say are good and bad and in between. And the reality is that you don't have to be who the world wants you to be, or even who you might think you need to be. You need to be who, who God calls you to be. And the truth of that is that in all situations, you're supposed to use your gifts. So, God has given you a gift, and that applies in every situation and every part of your life. Your gift isn't just something that you're supposed to use in certain circumstances. God made you a certain way, and then he designed this awesome gift, and he gave that to you, and he's given you the grace to power that. So use that gift in all situations, whatever it might be. If you're feeling left out at Summit Church because you don't know where to use your gift or how things fit together, just start doing things and do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And God will honor that. And you know what? Our church will be blessed by it and it will be awesome because there's going to be all these different gifts being used in all these different contexts and circumstances and it, like it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the prophets, the benefit of all. That's what God wants for Summit Church. So don't wait to use your gift. When you serve, it'll show up. And in the same way God gives individuals gifts, right, he gives us grace, this engine that powers the lives of believers, and gifts, spiritual gifts. He also gives the whole church this gift, the gift of leadership. And they're appointed with a specific purpose. So you look at verse 11 there. Christ gives leaders to purposefully point to him. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God's blueprint, his plans, what he wants for the church, the structure he wants, shows these different offices, you could call it. Sorry if that sounds political. I don't know how else to describe it. These leadership groups that are all about this core purpose Equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the, of the body of Christ. And it's moving towards this outcome that God wants unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And then ultimately, if you look at that maturity part and the stature, of the fullness of Christ, that's about looking like being conformed to Jesus Christ. This is one where it gets interesting. So we're going to look at a blueprint. Um, I'm not an artist. I'm not an architect, but I tried to put together a graphic that would help us understand God's intentions for why he wants things to to be the way that they are, his plans. So if we look at the foundation of the church, we've talked about this for multiple weeks, and we're going to keep talking about it. The foundation of the church is Jesus Christ, the word of God. Jesus Christ, the word of God. One person. One person, Jesus Christ, the word of God. But then Jesus, he gave the apostles and the prophets. Now, this is interesting. You'll notice the apostles and the prophets, though there's four groups or offices listed in verse 11. There's only two in the box on the screen. And that's specifically based on the fullness of what the New Testament says. So the apostles, who are they? They literally means someone who sent. The apostles were chosen by Christ himself. He sent them for a specific purpose, They were witnesses. That is, they interacted with the resurrected Christ. They were called to found the church. The apostles are where the the church kind of started. We could unpack that for like the next 70 weeks, but they're foundational. The apostles and the prophets. Now prophet is confusing because we know that there are prophets in the Old Testament. That's not what Paul's talking about here, right? So when you think prophet, you think like old guy flaming robes and smoky and doing things and calling people out. That's not what the picture is here. Prophets, it's an office in the church. But then we also think of prophecy, which is different than the office of prophet. But Paul's talking here about prophet, the office of prophet. And it was interesting, as the church was being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ by the apostles, the word of God wasn't complete and closed yet. There was new revelation in the time of the New Testament. And it was hard for churches to function. That's why God gave this office of prophet. Because believers didn't have yet the full word of God revealed to them. So God used, at a local level, prophets to communicate his word. And the reason on our little schematic here, that it's in a different box, is that as those men died, apostles and prophets... God didn't backfill those offices. So as we think about the church now, there's not apostles in the church now, and there's not prophets in the sense of this office that God set up for the church. That doesn't mean there's not prophecy, but in terms of this office that Christ intended, first the apostles to found the church, then the the prophets. Those offices are done. The work that God had given them to accomplish was done. And they got to be home with Jesus. So the apostles and the prophets were called to establish or found the church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. We see that in Ephesians 2, earlier in this book. We see it in 1 Corinthians 3. Um, We also see it multiple other places that I can't remember right now because I'm trying to go fast. But it's throughout the word of God. The apostles and the prophets, they laid the foundation of the word. That was what God called them to do. And they kind of passed the baton then, or the mission, to evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Evangelist as an office isn't talked about very much in Scripture. Paul wrote to Timothy, who is kind of like a church planter guy, evangelist guy, apostolic delegate guy, Timothy. He wrote to him, do the work of an evangelist. But evangelists, um, that one is a little tricky to figure out, but we think about Spreaders of the word of God. They're called to spread the word of God. They're called to, to, um, Sam and I were texting back and forth. He sent me this cool article. They're called to, to herald, to be announcers of the gospel. And that's a specific role and gift that God has given to people in the church that you have a heart and a gift to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that, though we're all called to preach and proclaim the gospel, evangelists do that in a way that is very productive and fruitful and they're very um, appropriately burdened and called to do that. That's the office of evangelist, spreading the gospel. And then there's this office of shepherds. And the way that it's written there, shepherds and teachers, they go together. So some translations even say like shepherd, teachers. Maybe your translation says pastor. That comes through the history of language. Pastors from French, from Latin, which basically is all about shepherding. Shepherds and teachers. And the shepherds and teachers are called the feed and lead the church with the word of God. We're going to park here just for a little while in regards to pastors, shepherds, and teachers, and just look at what the Bible says about shepherds and teachers, Because when we think about blueprints, blueprints show us God's intention and design. But over time, the church has had like additions built onto it in some ways. People add things. That's not always bad, but sometimes it's really bad when people do things like that. So the way that we have certainty about how the church should be is we always go back to the word of God. Tradition can help us understand things, but ultimately the word of God shows us how God wants things to be. So what does the Bible say about pastors or shepherds and teachers? They're called by God. That is, it's not really a vocation. It's not a way to earn money. It's a calling. God calls men to do this. They're also called by different titles. This is interesting because in our culture, this, this doesn't compute to some of us because of the traditions in which we've been part of. But when you look at what the word of God says, there's shepherds and pastors. There's elders and overseers. So when... Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 to the elders, that's not at the exclusion of the pastors and the overseers, right? Or when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 about the church in Ephesus, and he's talking about overseers, he's not excluding pastors and elders. Or when Paul wrote to Titus, who is called to plant churches in Crete, he's not saying, well, you just deal with elders and overseers and not pastors, the way scripture talks about this leadership role, it's a singular role described in three distinct ways. And that role is called to prayer primarily and equipping the saints with the word of God. And this requires that the people doing it are qualified. There's some qualifications to this role, specifically men with godly character who are able to teach the Word of God. So they're called by God, they're, they're called different things in Scripture, but it's referencing the same group. They're called the prayer and equipping the saints with the, the Word of God. They're qualified. And also the way that the Bible describes and prescribes some things for elders, pastors, overseers, shepherds, bishops, if you want to go old school. There's shared authority shared authority. That is, there's not supposed to be just one in a church. There's supposed to be a team of men sharing the authority together, serving together. But different gifts and different assigned responsibilities. That is, not every elder, pastor, overseer, supposed to do the same things. They don't all have the same gifts. And it's okay if there's one man, like in our church, one or two guys who are more effective or more gifted in preaching the word of God that they would preach the word of God. There's a man who's gifted more with administration as an elder. He's called to, to lead in that administration. So the leadership is not by assignment. It's by the gifts that men are given by the Holy Spirit of God in order to build up the church of Christ. So shared authority, right? This is a group, a team of men, but there's different gifts and different assigned responsibilities. Why do we deliberately emphasize this kind of leadership at Summit? So this is, this is getting a little personal about why we emphasize this at our church. The first thing is that it best matches the leadership blueprint in the Bible. So the way that scripture describes leadership in the church, and also prescribes, like specific things you have to do, we think that this is the best way based on our reading of scripture, how to organize our our leadership. Not every church agrees with us, but we're not leaders at other churches. We're leaders here. This also deliberately reminds us that Jesus alone is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of of the church. That's all throughout the New Testament. We see that. So when we think about, hey, who's your leader at church? Yeah, we think about men leading us, but we also want to have our, our eyes and our minds towards Jesus as being the head of the church. And that's specifically because that's a title that he holds in the word of God. He's the chief shepherd, and he's the head of the church. It also models humility, diversity, and teamwork. So what, one desire that we have as leaders at Summit Church is that the body of Christ would look at us as leaders working together, and you would see humility, different gifts and an ability to work together because we want that the whole church to be like that. So as we're called to set an example for the flock, not lording over them, not domineering over those in our charge. We want you all as part of Summit Church to see the example of humility and different gifts and teamwork. That's why that's important to us. It also protects leaders in the church from worldly systems or expectations, Every week, I would say there's usually three or four um, sets of new people that come in. And people bring different ideas about what the church is supposed to be into into this body sometimes. And sometimes that sets an unreasonable expectations towards the leader of the church. So you think about Jasper. I'll I'll use an example. Jasper has this gift from God that makes people want to talk to him. Kevin, am I right? Yeah, Kevin sits near him. Sam does too. People are just always going to Jasper's office. And you know what? Some people go to Jasper seeking. They want Jasper to fix them. Seriously. They want to talk to Jasper because they're like, I need to be fixed. I know something is wrong with me. You fix me, Jasper. Jasper has a gift from God, and that's awesome. But it is unreasonable For us as a church to expect him to bear that entire burden alone. It's not fair and it's not even good. So if you like talking to Jasper, keep talking to Jasper. But Jasper also knows that there's other people that are called to minister and care for people in our church, and we all work together to do that. The other challenge is sometimes people come in with the expectation of something that we're just not about at Summit. And it's much more effective to have a strong group of men together saying, No, this is what we're going to stay about at Summit Church. And that goes into that final point. This type of biblical eldership, this type of leadership, helps the church stay strong when leaders are hurting, like sick, or struggling, like they need to figure some things out. And it also allows the church to continue thriving throughout changing seasons of life and ministry. So we want to emphasize this because if the church is about one man, when that guy goes, the church falls apart. And I'm sure we can all think of instances, perhaps in our lives, where that's been the case in a church. It was all about one man or one or two people. And when those people left, that church fell apart. I'm thinking of specific churches in my mind where that's happened. And it's regretful because the church is about one man and it's Jesus Christ. And when we can stay focused on being about Jesus Christ... Then, when a leader is hurting, like you can think of in our church, what was that, six years ago? A pastor at the time had um, congestive heart failure. Without men around him, it would have been far worse of a situation than it was, as bad as it was. Or struggling. When a leader needs to figure something out, there's doubt or sin in his life. If he's the only one, it's a bad situation for the church. But God wants this system in place, this way of doing this blueprint so the church continues thriving throughout any changes that might come in life and ministry. So we have shepherds and teachers, right? This group. And we have evangelists. The shepherds are teaching the word of God. And the evangelists are spreading the gospel proclaiming, heralding, announcing the good news with excitement and fervor and passion. And that's equipping. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Equipping is the role of the elder, the overseer, the pastor in the church. That word is interesting because when you get into it, this is gonna get a little uncomfortable here, but that word means mending or fixing, repairing It also carries the idea of setting something right, and then coaching and training. So when we think about men bringing the word of God to equip people, there's something inherent in the idea of equipping that is pointing out that we have all all believers continue to have wrong thinking, and we need the word of God to set us right. So sometimes when a man is preaching the word of God, you are offended at what that man says. And sometimes that's just because we don't communicate well because we're broken people. But in other cases, it's because they said something that is the word of God and it hurts us because we know we're wrong. And the word of God sets us right, but the word of God also mends us and repairs us. And the word of God then perfects us and sets us towards something better. So these offices in the church are all about equipping. They're about setting right our thinking, how we think about different situations. And then they're about coaching and training. How do we do this together? This shows this vision, this blueprint of the architect. And it gives us a clear direction about what we're supposed to build and maintain and repair in the church. All to produce this. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So the saints are equipped. That is, saints is an awesome word in scripture. Look it up. If you're a Bible nerd, you're awesome as a Bible nerd. Do not be discouraged that you are. Look up what the word means in the original language as it was written. That would be Koine Greek, common Greek. Look up what saints is. It's about holiness, It's not about piety, it's about holiness, and that is God has made you holy, he has called you out, and you're part of his family. So all the saints are equipped to do the work of ministry. Doing the work here means toiling, working hard, and that's hard sometimes, you get sweaty and stinky and your muscles ache, but it's okay because you're doing the work of ministry. Ministry is not a vocation, ministry means service. God's purpose for each of these offices that are then equipping the saints is that people would be mended and set right and trained and prepared and coached to work hard at serving God and serving other people. That's what the work of ministry is. Serving God by serving other people. And as this happens, God builds up his body through this constant movement together towards the unity of faith and the knowledge of the son of god so when the scripture says until they attain the idea is not that you earn anything the idea is that something is always happening in the church always happening constantly happening and you're moving towards this direction and that's that christ is here we can see that in the cross and we're moving towards him together until we attain, until we arrive at that destination. Constant equipping, constant work of ministry, always driving towards this focus of knowing and following Jesus, the word of God. That's what unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Everything that we are doing is pointed toward the unity of the faith, that is the, the Christian religion, you might say, unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Do you know Jesus God wants the focus of the church to be the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the word of God, with the saints constantly being set right and nourished and prepared and coached with his word because his word is the power to set our hearts right and our minds right and prepare our lives so that we constantly carry on that purpose that he's given us. And finally, he gives us this blueprint so that we stay focused on the power and purpose of Christ. Why does God give these offices of leadership, the apostles and the prophets, and then the evangelists and the shepherds, the pastors and the church? Why does God want the saints always to be focused on Jesus Christ and building one another up? And it's so that we stay focused on the right thing. That's the blueprint. God gives us the purpose and the design so that we don't stray from doing and thinking about the right things. Look at verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then verse 15, I love this word, rather. So when you read verse 14, there's this idea of immaturity and deceit and destabilization and debilitation, but then rather, not that, no, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's a lot of words in verses fifteen and sixteen, isn't it? Sometimes you read what Paul writes and a translation where you're trying to capture those words accurately and it's like, dude, can you just say it simpler? But a core idea that we need to take out of verses 15 and 16 is that we're to grow up every way into him who's the head, into Christ, and Christ is the one who makes the body grow. Christ is the one who makes the body grow. I want you to think about your life. We're almost done here. But think about your life right now. And then look at verse 14 up on the screen. It's right there. No longer children. No longer tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Think about your life. And think about the pressures that you face as being part of this world that God has put us in. And think of how hard that is. All the time, there are pressures that are thrown against your life. And without a firm foundation of Jesus Christ, the word of God, you will be tossed to and fro by the waves of life. You will. And if you feel that way this morning, you're like, I can't do this because my life is a mess and it's all over the place and I have no control over my heart or my mind. And it's like in all situations, I'm just like, "Ah!" that's tossed to and fro, but in Christ Jesus, it doesn't have to be that way. And you don't have to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. One of the weird privileges of being a leader in the church is that I see all kinds of the weird doctrine that comes into our church. That is weird teaching, wrong teaching. How are you impacted by the wind that constantly blows into your life as different teachings are given to you? What the world teaches, what the devil teaches you, how are you impacted by those? How do you stay on the right path? You stay focused on Jesus Christ, the word of God, because there's human cunning. That means that men are trying to play games to trick you. And there's different motives for why men and women would have tried to trick you. But it's human cutting and craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is all about lies. Lies, lies. And the world is all about lies. And the devil is all about lies. And when he lies, he speaks his natural language. So we are just being pummeled in the world with lies about ourselves and about who God is and what God has done in Christ Jesus. But we're not to be like that anymore, immature and gullible and tossed about in this way. Rather, best word ever in this part of the passage, rather speaking the truth in love. This is what the the church is called to do. You are called to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. If you think back a few weeks, Todd preached from John chapter one. In the word, uh, oh, I'm not gonna be able to quote it now. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later in verse 14, and I think Justin even read it, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory of, as of the only son of the father. And then what does it say? Full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. This is unbelievable. This is not like Jesus is 50-50. Jesus is not like half grace and half truth. Jesus is 100% grace and 100% truth. And in Christ, you can be the same way. So often we will say wrong things about ourselves. We'll say, well, I'm more of a truth person or I'm more of a grace person. You know why we are that way? Because we're still in our flesh. But in Christ, he does something to us and we're 100% grace and 100% truth and it's awesome. And we can speak the truth in love to one another. And that doesn't mean that people won't be offended. But that's what the church is called to do with the purpose that he is building us up. Jesus is building us up and making us grow. And as we speak the truth and love to one another, the body builds itself up in love. I'm so out of shape as I'm up here screaming, I'm just huffing and puffing. I'll blame it on COVID because I sit in my basement all day looking at a screen. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him, Jesus. He's the head from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, Jesus is using you to hold the body together. When each part is working properly, work hard. Toil in this to serve. Makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, if you know anything about our church, you know that there's a passage that reflects our mission. What's our mission? Who could say it? Glorify God by, someone say it, come on. Making disciples, right. Not just front rowers, back rowers, you can do it too. Glorify God by making disciples who do what? Exalt Jesus Christ. That wasn't an insult to any back rower. I'm a back rower too in some regards. It's all good. There's many places to sit in our church and you can sit in any one unless someone is already sitting there because that would get awkward. (laughs) Glorify God by making disciples who exalt Jesus Christ. Within that, and applying Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, there's something we want at Summit Church. This isn't a mission statement that you see up there. You don't have to memorize it, but this reflects what the word of God says about the type of culture that he wants in each one of his bodies. And that is that we're abiding in Christ together, remaining in Christ together, so that we're not destabilized, not debilitated, not distracted by lies. But we're speaking the truth and love together so that the church is built up in love. That's what God wants at Summit Church. That's the vision of Summit Church because it's expressed by the architect. Hear in his word, his revelation to us, to how he wants things to be. Abiding in Christ together. Don't be destabilized or distracted by lies. Instead, speak the truth in love to one another so that the church is built up in love. And when you apply that to something like the Great Commission, which is famous, right, from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, all of a sudden, you see this awesome picture that it all goes together. There's not different parts. God has authored this and revealed it to us, and it all fits together perfectly Look at verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's all about Jesus. Christ is exalted over all. Go, therefore, you have to work, you have to toil, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is exalted over all. Christ is with us the whole time. And he calls us to do these things in the ways that he has designed so that we would show the value of the awesomeness that God has planned and is carrying out in Christ Jesus. So when we think about Summit Church, we have this mission and we want to accomplish it together. But there's an awful lot, an awful lot, like months and years of awesome ways that we can live and work together in Christ Jesus that goes to that making disciples part of things. So join me in prayer now as we close. You're so good, God. What a great architect you are. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And you have this plan he would be exalted and in that you would be glorified and that's what we want to do forgive us father that sometimes we mess that up and we get focused on ourselves and not your ways and your plans I pray by your spirit and through your word we would remember to go back to you to repent and focus on your ways God I ask that you would work in the hearts of your people at Summit Church this week to come that we would dive into your word and eat it up like our favorite food and our minds would be renewed and our hearts would be changed and hurts would be healed and wrong thinking would be set right. and then in all things we would be focused on and even rightly obsessed with Jesus Christ the Word of God. We pray that he would receive all glory and honor and praise in our hearts by the proclamation of our words and as we sing together now. Thank you for who you are, Father, and what you've done in your son, Jesus. Amen.